I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Katja Hoyer, is a German-British historian, journalist, a visiting research fellow at King's College London, and a fellow of the Royal Historical Society. She is a columnist for the Washington Post and host of the podcast, The New Germany. She was born in East Germany and moved to the UK as a young adult. Hoyer has published two books about the history of Germany. Her first book, Blood and Iron, was about the German Empire from 1871 to 1918. Her second book, Beyond the Wall, about the history of East Germany from 1949 to 1990, is the subject of today's interview. Katja, welcome to Delving In. Thank you. First off, uh, congratulations on your latest book, Beyond the Wall, which has generated dozens and dozens of reviews and prominent publications. Some declared the book to be the definitive history of East Germany, known in English as the German Democratic Republic, or GDR. Others are highly critical of what they regard as the overall nostalgic tone and the matter-of-fact descriptions of East Germany's abuses of, of human rights. It's clear that your book is being taken very seriously, is admired for its well-researched stories, its engaging narrative style, and its attention to a neglected history. Before we launch into the content of the book, though, tell us a bit about your own background growing up in East Germany, born just four years before the fall of the Berlin Wall and the reunification of Germany a year later. Yeah, so for me, it was strange to be born into a country that I then didn't really experience consciously because I was only four years old when the Berlin Wall fell and then five years old when Germany reunified and the GDR disappeared. When you look at my birth certificate, it will basically state a country that, that isn't there anymore, isn't on the map, and that's a very strange thing to grow up with, having this background that you you don't know. You're supposed to be from somewhere that isn't there anymore physically. The same even goes for the city I was born in, which is Wilhelm Piekstadt Guben. It was named after the, the first and only president of the GDR and is now called Just Guben. But even today, I've got dual citizenship now. I live in Britain. I've got this British passport that says Wilhelm Piekstadt Guben in it. And it's a very peculiar, fractured sense of, of belonging. So there is an element in me, even though the, the book I've written isn't a personal history of the GDR, it isn't like a kind of family memoir or anything like that. It's a, it is a straight history of the GDR. There was certainly a sense in me where I wanted to go back as an adult, as a professional historian, and investigate this country that I'm from, but that doesn't exist anymore, and certainly part of what I was trying to do. And I would think you still have family in East Germany? Yeah, my family live in what was East Germany still. I grew up there, so I only moved to Britain about sort of 10 or so years ago now. So I went to school and, and then to university in what was East Germany as well. So you also grow up really with a lot of kind of people who are slightly or a lot older than you telling you their, their stories and very obviously culturally coming from that place as well. So there are many things that East Germans would do, but West Germans wouldn't, or things that they know or words that they use that, that kind of hark back to a time that you haven't experienced just by merit of the timing of your birth. So there's certainly, there was a lot around me when I grew up and when I was educated at school and university that, that kind of went back to that time as well. And are your friends and family in East Germany nostalgic for the GDR at this point? No, and I don't think many people are. This is one of the weird things about the way that my book's been received by some people. I, I certainly have no sense of nostalgia, neither does my family. I think for most people, 1990 was a point at which their lives changed. And I think most people in East Germany just want that recognised, the fact that they had lives before 1990 that were worth living, that weren't this grey 
dictatorship experience as part of it, but it isn't the only part. People also want to remember the, the work that they did, the buildings that they saw being raised around them, the, the life experience that they had. And I think the same is true for the people that I grew up with, be that my parents or, or my teachers, my neighbours. They were telling these stories not because they were saying how wonderful everything was 1970s and the GDR, but because it's part of their lives. Uh, and that was trying to do. And the tone that I've used is the tone of that element of normality almost to capture what people thought and tried to do at the time rather than judging everything with hindsight in every other sentence. Yeah, for what it's worth, I, I really took the tone as being the kind of tone that any uh, novelist wants to take, which is you don't want to come down heavily judging your characters. You want to just present them and leave it up to the reader to whether to judge or not. But it, it makes sense to me to want to depict the history in just the way it was without adding a, a layer of judgment. It depends what kind of writing it is. Yeah, that is true. I do try and judge the things, whether they worked or not. There's a lot of analysis, I think, in the book, political, economic, and so on. But there isn't a sense where I say this person was a very good person because they, they led this and that life, and this person shouldn't have made that decision at this point in time. That's what I try not to do because I think it's hard to do that. And we end up obviously using our perspective in hindsight to try and make those judgments. Whilst at the time, people had no idea that the system was coming to an end eventually and, and just had to live their lives in that way. And, and they were used to certain things as well. So for instance, the idea of this overbearing Stasi, the, the secret police of East Germany, this overbearing system is something that, that we have today. But I was trying to get my head around what was, what was it like you know, to actually live with the system, to be born into a system that is like this when you come in. I never understood why, for instance, my father never got angry about this. I said they were trying to influence your life. They were watching you at all times. Did you not get annoyed with this? And he tried to explain to me that this was just a thing for them that just happened because it was always there. It was always around them. And you found it annoying and you found it intrusive, but you learned to live with it. Um, because there was no obvious you know, way not to do that. And to judge that, I think, is, is difficult from, from our perspective today. Yeah, and of course, for the people who were actually prosecuted by the Stasi and, and thrown into prisons, that's a different story. But if you manage to stay clear of all that, then it just becomes a part of life and you just have to live with it. Yeah, those stories are in the book as well. You do have the, the Stasi and the wall and everything in there. But again, I wanted to hold back in saying somebody who sat in the Stasi prison led, led a worthier life than somebody who didn't, because I think that's very hard to do. From It's easy to sit here in my armchair 30 years later and make those judgments. I think at the time, in terms of the way that people lived, those were things that must be seen within that context, I think. Uh, and the vast majority of East Germans, I think, lived somewhere between the two extremes of complete and total opposition and kind of completely going along with the system. And to try and label them into those categories, I think, is, is tricky. And clearly your book starts with the period immediately after the Second World War, so you're not going to deal with the Nazi period at all, except in the aftermath. And at that time, after, after, right after the war, Stalin soon murdered three quarters of the German exiles uh, living in the Soviet Union, who had been communist symp sympathizers. Yes, this was before the Second World War. So basically what happened was that the Soviet, not Soviet, sorry, the German communists, so people who'd been in the Communist Party or sympathised with, with the communist cause in the 1920s, 
suddenly when Hitler came into power in 1933, he found themselves in you know mortal danger effectively because he used the early concentration camps that were set up immediately for his political opponents and, and those were socialists, social democrats and, and communists. So many of these people who wanted to escape from that went to the Soviet Union because that was the only communist state on earth at that point. And they thought this is killing two birds with one stone. On the one hand side, they get out of Nazi Germany and then save their lives. And on the other hand, they can actually build up this kind of better system that they've been dreaming of in another country. And it's the Stalinist purges that happen in the middle and late 1930s that actually affect these German communists as well, because Stalin becomes incredibly paranoid that there's enemies everywhere, everybody's got it in for him. And with the Germans, he suspects, despite the fact that they say they may be communists, he suspects that they're all spies and agents who are sent by Hitler into the Soviet Union to commit acts of sabotage or spy their fifth columnists for him. And he sends this kind of blanket order out, it's called the German order, where he basically says all Germans are suspicious. And that includes not just the German communists that had just arrived, of, of whom there are also tens of thousands, but also the ethnic Germans that had already lived in the Soviet Union for centuries often. So it's a really bizarre situation where these people go there because they, they want to help basically the Soviet Union. They want to help the other side in the war. And Stalin's paranoia cracks down so hard on them that a quarter of them only survives. And for the Politburo of the Communist Party, so like the leadership of them, nine of them go to the Soviet Union, only two of them are still alive at the end of the war. So it just goes to show how much paranoia there was that these people ended up either being shot directly as dangerous elements before and during the war, or they were put into the, the gulag system, this kind of camp system that the Soviets had set up. So one way or another, they didn't find the socialist sort of paradise that they were hoping for in the Soviet Union and, and came back those that survived came back to Germany completely changed in their experiences. And paranoia has a way of breeding paranoia. And so you have the, the survivors, the German survivors who had settled in what became the Soviet Union. It was from that group that the leadership of the, of the GDR was selected. So you can just only imagine how terrifying that would be to, it's not terrifying to survive, it's more terrifying, I guess, to, to die. But you have this targeted population, and, and then they're supposed to be creating a system that's sympathetic to the Soviets. Yeah, so basically the problem that all of the occupying powers had was that Germany was basically like ungoverned when they, when they occupied Germany, because effectively anybody who had been a politician or a, a functionary of some shape or form was a Nazi by definition. And so they had to get rid of that entire system and kind of run Germany on behalf of the Germans up until the people had been fired. And in the Soviet zone of occupation, so that's one of four, the other three were run by the US, by Britain and by France. The Soviets thinking is, well, we need some Germans to run Germany, but it's difficult to see who isn't fired effectively. So they fall back on the German communists that had survived the purges and were in the Soviet Union because by definition they weren't in Nazi Germany during that time. And they'd already proved that they were loyal to Stalin. Otherwise, they wouldn't have survived if they hadn't 100% proved that. And these people then get sent back to Germany to set up structures in that zone of occupation. And one way that they prove their loyalty is by, by naming supposed collaborators and disloyal people. And the, the more people you can name, the more you can prove the, your loyalty, regardless of whether those people deserve to be named. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. That was certainly the logic. That didn't even that didn't always save them. I mean, I give some examples in the book where people were grassing up like dozens of their friends and colleagues and, and associates 
and still themselves end up being shot or end up being taken away to Siberia and never seen again. Quite often it's completely innocent people as well who had literally done nothing other than fled to the Soviet Union in order to survive. Factory workers, for example, or teachers who were teaching in some of the German schools that were being set up for the children even who came over to the, who went over to the Soviet Union. So those people who, who survived most likely did so because they found a way to proving because of the immense sacrifice of grassing up their own family members often or, or people very close to them. They found ways of proving once and for all that they were loyal to Stalin. And from that group, basically, a group of 10 men is selected. They are called the Gruppe Ulbricht, the, the Ulbricht group, named after their leader, Walter Ulbricht, who had basically served on Stalin's side during the Battle of Stalingrad and, and churned up propaganda to try and turn the German soldiers against the regime and basically try and get them over to the other side. And he gets sent back with nine other like-minded men to set up things in the in Germany. They get sent back actually on the same day that Hitler commits suicide in the bunker. So the war isn't even over yet. And those people get put back into Germany to set things up. Yeah, well, one of the amazing things that you write about is that these new leaders were more keen to make East Germany communist even than Stalin. Stalin was a little bit hesitant to, from what you write to do that. He was Stalin thought it would be better to have a unified Germany but it, in fact, it was as these new recruits that insisted on making a, a communist mini-state. Now, I say mini-state just because it was much smaller than West Germany. Yeah, Stalin's problem was that basically in contrast to the First World War, where really high reparations sum was put on Germany and, and people at that point believed that's partially what led to the Second World War, they wanted to avoid that this time. And so they basically told the Allies agreed that this time they wouldn't name a sum. They would just take out of their own zone of occupation what they wanted for reparations. And Stalin's problem was that he shipped, he'd simply drawn the short straw, if you will, in terms of occupation zones, because he got the northeast of Germany, which is very flat, agrarian, not particularly industrialized. Germany's industrial heartland is in the rural region, which is in the far west by the French border, which was under um, British and American control. So basically, Stalin looked at this and thought, as long as it's unified, as it, as it is still for another four years between 1945 and 49. And he can take some of the industrial goods from the West. They'd agreed to give him 10% of their own industrial output from West Germany. But the moment the country splits permanently, he loses all of that. And he can't draw reparations out of, out of East Germany when you know there's nothing there, certainly not um, anything industrial. And that's his problem, effectively, which is why he's keen to, to not have East Germany as a separate state. But for the German communists, who he'd sent back... They'd been dreaming about German communism for decades at this point. Marx was German and he said in the middle of the Karl Marx, that is the, the kind of um, person who came up with the whole idea of communism. He said in the middle of the 19th century that there would be a revolution and the workers would rise up and create this utopian state. And it had it just hadn't happened, not after the First World War when it did in Russia, not even after the calamity of the Second World War. It looked like they were naturally rising up the Germans and, and forming some sort of worker state. And so now that they get given a piece of land by Stalin to run... This is their chance to make it a communist state for themselves on German soil. And this is why they're much, much more pushy than Stalin himself to, you know, to create basically a system that they can run for themselves in a communist way. But Stalin doesn't care. He just wants reparation of, reparations of Germany at this point. So the East Germans, so the GDR had to pay reparations to Russia, which had suffered enormously, or to the Soviet Union, which had suffered enormously during World War II. And you write that the, that this the Soviets inflicted uh, substantial revenge against the German population as the war was ending. 
mass rapes and so on and so forth against the not only the Germans in Germany, but ethnic Germans east of, of Germany. And then the Germans are, East Germans are forced to pay reparations. And despite all these seeds of enmity going both ways, the GDR becomes a loyal member of the Soviet bloc. And I just was wondering, what was that process like for citizens of East Germany? I would think there would be so much hatred. There was. That's, it's an easy thing to conflate the people of East Germany with their leadership, with the government. And that's the difference. This is exactly the thing that they are very acutely aware of themselves, is that they'd spent the entire war in the Soviet Union. They hadn't been Nazified. They weren't in the Hitler Youth. They hadn't been sent to war to fight a grueling genocidal war in Eastern Europe. They hadn't been in Soviet captivity in the way that the German soldiers were. Many of the men only came back in the early 50s from quarries in the Soviet Union where they were put to work if they even survived that. They weren't raped in the way that that the German women and many young girls were when the Russian soldiers invaded. About two million women were raped. None of that happened to the Soviet Sovieticized East Germans who were sent back afterwards to, to run the country. So there's a huge gulf there. And, and those people are very, the, the communists, they were trained in, Soviet, in the Soviet Union. Also in ideology, they learn a very kind of Leninist style of, of communism themselves, which they follow dogmatically. If they weren't dogmatic or Leninist, they wouldn't have survived during the purge years. They are very keen to look up to the Soviet Union and they use this phrase of liberation. They say Germany was liberated by the Soviets, which seems an absolute joke to many of, of the people there. Who Yes, they were keen that to, for the war to end and many of them had become disillusioned with Nazism as well. But there was no way that, you know, when all of these things that just happened to you personally, that you were going to turn around and see the Soviets as liberators. So it was indeed a very difficult narrative to sell to the East German public. Whilst in the West, by that point, the the Americans and the British had decided to build up West Germany and invest in it rather than taking things out. So there's the Marshall Plan, for example, being American money being pumped into the West German economy. The Brits decide, for instance, to build up the Volkswagen, the, the VW factory again, rather than dismantling it and taking it to Britain, as they could have done. So there's a very different atmosphere in West Germany. People are now beginning to see kind of Western leadership as a as a partner, whilst in the East you still have ordinary people, you know, being under occupation effectively and for a long time they see it like that. So it seems to me that the East and West had very different approaches to confronting the uh, Nazi past. The West, you write that West Germany uh, openly welcomed former Nazis back into the civil service, into teaching professions, and even the police force. And at the same time, West Germany accepted at least to some extent the, the guilt of its Nazi past, including the Holocaust. They were an early supporter of, of is the state of Israel, and they paid rep- substantial reparations uh, to it for many years. Uh, and the GDR took a different approach. Uh, it, it brutally imprisoned, executed, or suppressed anyone suspected of Nazi sympathies. And in, in your book, you succinctly mention in a single sentence that there was insufficient attention uh, given to, the, to a thorough investigation of the Holocaust, and you, you leave it at that. So would it be accurate to say that while the GDR acted to crush any vestiges of Nazism, it largely disavowed or at least buried uh, guilt over the Nazi past? I think the, the different approach goes back in some ways to what the two states are. So when East and West Germany are founded in 1949, the West gets founded first and the West explicitly says we are Germany meaning they are the legal and political successor of all the German states that came before, including Nazi Germany. So whilst they do draw a line there and they do say this is zero and we'll start again, nonetheless they are the legal successor and therefore they are willing to pay 
for example, compensation to Jews, even when that is often very ridiculously small amounts. But the idea is there that they need to pay for that, basically, in some shape or form. And therefore, you get this early support for Israel as well. In the East, they draw a line there and they say, no, we're starting from scratch. This this was bad, what happened before, and we need a new Germany. They actually write a new German anthem, for example, a completely new one from scratch for themselves, for East Germany, and, and they start again. And they're not denying that the Holocaust happened. The Jews are always on the lists of the victims of fascism and in the official parlance of the state. But because they're so obsessed with the sacrifice, as they call it, that the socialists and the communists made, that they basically look at concentration camps and other sites of Nazi crimes with that lens. And so they became like martyr sites really for the socialist and the communist cause. So for example, places where communist opponents of the states were murdered, there'll be like big memorials and things like that there to commemorate them. And therefore the Jews, despite the fact that their numbers were of course a lot higher because the Nazis believed communists could be reformed. So by and large, they were put into concentration camps and then released usually a few months afterwards with the idea that they were now cured, but they were still in the eyes of the Nazis, genetic Germans whilst Jews were to be, to be exterminated. So the, the whole logic was to murder them outright because they can't be reformed in the eyes of the Nazis. So that isn't really acknowledged as much. And then the other problem is, of course, that the G for, GDR from the beginning follows this narrative of colonialism with Israel. So the idea that this is people imposing themselves onto a region of others and they take as many left-wing people do today. We see this in the current conflict again take the side of the Palestinians from the beginning and therefore basically deny the responsibility for Israel as a state, the German responsibility as well. So very different approaches there, East and West. And you also write about how even though uh, East Germany becomes part of the Soviet bloc, and they're even eventually referred to as the jewel in the system, that the Soviet Union imposed major obstacles to its success. This was a very interesting aspect of your book. You mentioned about the reparations. You also mentioned about the, the lack of natural resources in that part of Germany. But also you uh, write about the plundering of East German talent, the plundering of East German machinery, raw materials, test tubes, chemicals, optical lenses, whole laboratories packed up in boxes and shipped east, train tracks dismantled, cabling ripped out of the ground from the wa- from the, and from the walls. And it really robbed the Soviet zone of occupation of, you write, of one third of its industrial base. I and mean, it seems like it was really starting from way behind the starting line. Yeah, in lots of ways, whichever way you want to look at it. It's naturally the smaller state, it's naturally the less industrialized. And on top of that, it, it most of the vast majority of reparations that were paid for the Second World War are paid by East Germany, by the state that naturally struggled to function in any case. Uh, I use another statistic in the book, in the, in the early period, in the first few years of its existence, 60% of un- ongoing uh, production also goes to the Soviet Union. So you're literally producing new things to try and get the economy going. And at the end of the assembly line, there's Soviet lorries that are sitting there taking the stuff away. And that was a huge problem. And I, I argue that basically that goes down to this idea that Stalin wasn't really all that keen on East Germany to start with. When you think about the Russian mindset that is still there today under Putin, there's this kind of idea of pan-Slavism. So the idea that all the Slavic people should be in one Uh, realm or under one kind of leadership, if you will, from Moscow. And Germans aren't Slavs. So basically, the idea that you have all the Eastern European nations under one roof, 
or under occupation, if you to put it more precisely, doesn't include these Germans. They're like a bargaining chip that Stalin keeps for the time being, but eventually they might be traded in. He, for instance, sends the Stalin note, which I take seriously in the book, in 1952, where he offers German reunification three years into the existence of the two states and says actually having a reunified Germany, but one that isn't on one side or the other, basically he doesn't want it in NATO, which had just been formed. If that's the the condition basically to have a neutral Germany without being heavily militarized, then he's quite happy to, to trade East Germany in for that. And that's a constant worry for the East German communists who, of course, want to hold on for to the East German states and want to prove to Stalin that they're worth having. So they become like ultra ideological and ultra communist in their ways and try and prove to the Soviet Union that they are a worthy part of their... And in that way, East Germany is very different from the other states that are part of the Soviet empire because they're not culturally aligned in the way that, that the mind in Moscow is thinking... Stalin still has this weird admiration for Germany, despite everything that happened as well. Kind of, he still talks about Beethoven and German thinkers and German culture. There's this famous slogan that's plastered all over Berlin at the time from Stalin, who said that the Hitlers come and go, but the German people and the German state remain. He still has this weird respect for Germany as a civilization that you look in the eye, basically, and that you bargain with and you see them as a potentially as an enemy, potentially as a partner, but he takes Germans seriously in the way that he doesn't with with the Poles or with Czechs or with Bulgarians, the other Eastern European nations who are, in his view, there to be subjugated. And that's, I think, the difference there. Yeah, so you have both admiration, but also fear that Germany could rise one more time and, and start World War III. That's so that Germany had to be defanged in a way. And the, in West Germany, the, the Allied uh, forces, uh, countries, decided that uh, there shouldn't be a repeat of the uh, Treaty of Versailles and, and that Western needed to be invested in and not subjugated, whereas the East Germany was a different strategy. Yeah, and they're also worried about the Soviet Union, the Western powers, and therefore they decide that West Germany needs to be built up as a bulwark against Soviet imperialism. Let's not forget that this is the era of McCarthyism and then the Red Scare and, and so on. There's this kind of idea of rollback in the, in Europe. And the way to do that is to incorporate West Germany very quickly into a Western system of defensive system, effectively, that is NATO. And when West Germany begins to rearm, talking a few years, really, early 1950s, a few years after the end of the Second World War, Stalin absolutely panics in 1951-52 and begins to think this is not just going to be Germany this time. This is Germany and the United States and Britain and France all together in one military organization and this time they're going to manage because, first of all, they are much bigger and, and Germany had nearly managed to defeat them. And secondly, the Soviet Union was still on its knees from the Second World War and couldn't have put up much of a defense. And that's the mindset he gets in. Khrushchev later said in an interview that Stalin actually shivered. He panicked. He was sitting there hyperventilating in 1952, not quite knowing what to do with the situation. And it's then at that point that East Germany basically gets told barricade the borders between East and West Germany, not the Berlin one yet, because Berlin is an occupied city and, and still governed by all four powers, but the inner German border, basically the long border that goes through Germany. And you begin to see a very different picture from then onwards. But he still, even as a last roll of the dice at that point, he offers reunification and says he'd rather have that and trade East Germany in basically in exchange for not having Germany as a West Germany that is a threat again. So let's shift now to the the building of the political apparatus. You quote Ulbricht as saying that it has to look democratic, 
but we must have everything in our hands. And so what did this appearance of democracy consist of? It's in the title, German, German Democratic Republic. <laughs> but how is it meant to be convincing to East German citizens that this was going to be a democracy? To begin with, it looked like he was building what he called an anti-fascist front. So this included anybody and everybody who was against fascism. So that's, of course, communists, but it's also social democrats, Christians, all sorts of organizations and people that, that fit into that bracket. Despite its reputation later on, obviously, and rightly, as a state, for instance, that is against Christianity and is trying to abolish religion in its within its system, initially, the churches, both the Protestant and the Catholic Church, sign up to this entire thing and basically, for instance, help found the German youth organization, the Free German Youth, or F FDJ. Initially, it looks to most Germans like they're genuinely trying to set up an anti-fascist system as opposed to an outright dictatorship. When it then becomes obvious that all of these people... Oh, and by the way, there's a, there's a multi-party system on paper as well all the way to the end. So they do keep a Christian party, for example, a farmer's party, and so on. They keep those. And again, you can join those parties, but it will not necessarily be good for your reputation and your career advances if you do. The parties do actually sit in parliament, but parliament has got nothing to say really in terms of how the government is run. And they do have to sign off, you know, directives that just come from the ruling party, from the Socialist Unity Party. And that's actually in the constitution of the GDR later on. It just says basically the party, and they mean basically the ruling party, is always right and therefore everybody else follows its directive. So that's one way in which they keep that pretense open, even though long after people have realised that they do live in a dictatorship. There's also this farcical procedure of voting, which people call paper folding, because that's effectively what it was. So you'd go into the voting booth and it, it, people would give you a list of all the candidates you know, that you will be voting for. But you can't actually say, I don't want this candidate, I want this candidate. You just have to agree with the entire list. And you do that by folding the piece of paper you've just been given and putting it into the urn and then you walk back out. So people thought it was a ridiculous thing to do. But again, it's easy to forget that people grow into that situation. You know, later on, basically, if you're born in 1960, you grow up with a system where that is already the case. You know, it's just a chore that you have to do um, every four years and you just walk up there and you do that and fold your piece of paper and be done with it. Are you required to vote? Not in theory, no. In practice, yes. So if you didn't go, people would notice that you hadn't gotten because your name would be crossed off on a list and it would be obvious in your workplace and in your neighbourhood and to the Stasi, certainly the secret police, that you hadn't gone voting. Initially, they'd just make you aware of this, knock on your door and say, oh, you haven't voted yet. <laughs> Don't you want to go? And if there could be serious ramifications. But again, most people didn't think about it this actively the most people that I spoke to said that it was just a thing that you did you know you just did that because it was what everybody did and often it was organized as well as to say your entire all of your work colleagues would go together you know when they were done with work it was just a thing that you couldn't then say oh no I don't want to go so it was just a, a thing that everybody tagged along with and, and you attributed the, the lack of resistance to the uh, authoritarian state was uh, maybe due to war exhaustion and the a desire for simple stability, that following the Nazi regime, it was just so much destruction, so much exhaustion, that there wasn't much fight left in the, in the public. Yeah, I think that's true to start with. So for 1949, 1950, 51, 52, where people also just genuinely try and make this work. They've just been told this is an anti-fascist state. It's the opposite of the state that has just 
imposed all of this misery on you. And it's a means of setting up a new Germany that could be peaceful. So initially, people actually, a lot of people actually believed in that idea. That breaks down pretty quickly because it just doesn't work and it becomes obvious that it's a dictatorship. And you get a mass uprising in 1953 of one million people. An uprising that strangely is often forgotten. People know often of the Hungarian Revolution, for example, of the Prague Spring or of Solidarność in Poland, those kind of big mass movements. But East Germany was the first one in 1953, and that gets crushed brutally by the Soviets. 55 people at least were killed during that uprising. And that's following Stalin's death? Yeah, so Stalin just uh, Stalin died in March 1953, and the uprising is in June. So that's a lot to do with it, is that people for a moment think things are going to get better, and then realize actually the, their own dictator, Walter Ulbricht, is, is cracking down even harder. That's mostly because at this point, the economy is still struggling under all of these factors that we talked about earlier. People are working incredibly hard, long hours in factories and try and build up their country that is completely shattered still and still in ruins, quite literally. Cities aren't rebuilt yet. And they can't see any result of their efforts, basically. The shelves are empty at the end of the day. They're still not living in proper houses. West Germany has an economic miracle at the same time. So people are looking over there and saying, like, why isn't this happening here? But then once this uprising is crushed and the Soviets basically say to Albrecht, look, we're not doing that again. You sort your own country out. We've got other problems to, to look after ourselves. We don't want to look after you as well. And Albrecht knows that actually he can't crush this uprising himself, not now, not ever, because he hasn't got enough kind of security forces to do that. He needs to make sure that people are at least happy enough so that this kind of uprising doesn't happen again. So suddenly the focus has shifted away from building up heavy industry and, and from doing all of the stuff that doesn't really produce visible results for, for people towards light industry, towards consumer goods, towards building up things like childcare, a healthcare system, housing, and all of these kinds of things. And at that moment, late 50s, he also opens up culturally a little bit and, and makes it look as though people are getting a bit more freedom. You actually begin to see a reduction of the numbers of people that are leaving to towards West Germany. And people are settling into this situation where, okay, at least it's stable, we're not starving, we're not in, in acute danger at this point. So let's stick with the previous period just for a bit longer. After this brutal uh, crackdown, the Stasi really gets going, and you describe it as being that the scale of the undertaking is astonishing and easily puts the GDR among the most efficient and ruthless police states that have ever existed. And I also wanted to quote uh, another paragraph from your book that really speaks to this. It was the ever-present systemic fear that the survivors of Nazism and Stalinism, who had built socialism in the GDR, had baked into its very foundation. The terror of subversion, itself a product of police states that had gone before, sat so deep within the very heart of East Berlin that neither Ulbricht nor Honecker, who's the subsequent uh, head, ever really found the courage to face and overcome it. Like a child who never grew out of the nighttime terrors of infancy, the GDR never stopped looking for monsters under its bed. Yeah, that doesn't sound like me being nostalgic, does it? <laughs> no, that particular paragraph, no, it's, that's very powerfully written. Just the, I'm a retired psychologist and, and paranoia is one of the uh, mental states that can be very contagious. And the paranoia of Stalin, the paranoia of Ulbricht, the paranoia of the, within the Stasi, it just breeds itself. I think so, yeah. And people often forget as well that the same people that I'm talking about there at this point, we're talking Second World War and, and the immediate aftermath, they're still in charge of the country in the 1980s because they just refused to give up power. So you have people like 
Eric Honecker, who's the second leader um, of the GDR, leads it through the, the second half of its existence. He wasn't in the Soviet Union, but he sat in a Stasi uh, in a in a Nazi prison throughout pretty much the entire period, and had also been experiencing obviously the the Gestapo and all the terror that came with living in Hitler state. You have Eric Mielke, the chief of the of the Stasi. He was one of those people who fled to the Soviet Union, and he was trained there as a terrorist. So he was constantly looking out over his shoulder and he was a spy himself he went he was sent to the spanish civil war to commit acts of sabotage and so on and plant bombs and nations and those kinds of things you don't get the sort of mindset out of these people he's still sitting there in the 1980s still thinks he's surrounded by enemies and by people who've got it in for him and the regime and that spirit prevails just gets perpetuated these because they are so different these this cohort of leaders from the people that they're leading, they never get it out of their heads that most people just want to get on with their lives and want to build up a stable country. And even when it's obvious that is the case, because there are no uprisings between 1953 and then the one that brings down the state in the end in 1989, they have literally over 30 years there of kind of social peace largely with people not going out onto the streets and not being openly rebellious and even that long period of stability isn't enough to get it into the leaders minds that this is a fairly stable society that just wants to get on with things they still don't trust them to listen to whatever they want to listen to lead the lifestyles they want to lead found little companies maybe to make a living for themselves that people just don't get trusted with anything and that's part of the issue i think why the state falls in the end and another one of the problems is being right next door to West Germany, which is so much more successful economically. And the residents of, of East Germany want to go there and they, and they do go there in increasing numbers, especially the people with talent and expertise. And I imagine that's what primarily leads to the building of the Berlin Wall, because they just was, they were hemorrhaging people. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's exactly the reason why. So you have... Again, this is something that people don't always consider in, in its full meaning. The fact that the Berlin Wall and the divide between East and West Germany is seen as the kind of frontier of the Cold War. The idea that people behind it all want to leave to the West is there. So that includes, say, Poles, for example. But the difference for Poles and for East Germans is that there isn't another Poland on the other side that you can go to and that you can look at as a role model, whilst for East Germans there is that other Germany. So they're looking basically west and saying, my relatives live over there. I, I get letters and, and parcels from them. I know what it's like over there. They can watch West German television. The regime is so aware of this that they just get used to it. So some of the East German scheduling for the TV kind of program actually gets adapted so they know when something really popular is on in the East, when so there's a crime drama th series that's been going on for decades in Germany, which is always played on a Sunday night. And they know that people are going to watch that. So there's no point putting anything on that you want East Germans to see on East German television because they're all going to watch West German television. That is just not the case for people who live in Poland or in the Czech Republic. There isn't another country like theirs on the other side where, where a lot of their relatives live. So that's always going to be a pull. And then the, the issue is, of course, that when you create a society that is communist and therefore on paper classless, um, anybody who is middle class and upwards is going to have a huge disadvantage in that system because they'll never make money or, or improve their social status. So if you're a doctor or a lawyer or an architect or an engineer or anybody else who's needed in the kind of immediate after war economy, like builders, for example, 
you're going to make a lot more money in the West and you're going to get the kind of respect and the social status that comes with your standing. And that just isn't the case in the East. And so it's those kinds of people, exactly the people that you need to rebuild who are leaving the um, GDR en masse. It's interesting as well. One of the statistics I use in the book is from um, refugee camps that get set up um, in West Germany for East German refugees. And they register everyone on arrival and basically ask them a questionnaire why they're here, basically why they've left. And the vast majority of them said that they left for economic reasons. And that is exactly the, the problem for the GDR that never goes away. When Eric Honecker is asked in the late 1980s, you know, will, will the Berlin Wall ever fall? He says, no, it will still stand in, a, you know, in 50 and 100 years because the reason why it's there hasn't gone away. You know, there's still another Germany that people can go to on the other side. So you wrote that one of the surprising effects of the building of the Berlin Wall was a calming of the population, which is really interesting. You would think it would be the opposite, that it would create a cauldron of discontent. But I, I imagine part of that also was the strategy of, I guess it was Honegger at that point, to allow a, a certain amount of cultural opening up, supplying Western genes, American genes like Levi's <laughs> to the population and making sure they have a good supply of real coffee and not some kind of dre- dreadful mixture of uh, herbs and coffee. So there was a kind of, uh, I guess, a strategic easing, cultural easing, and that seemed to work in a way for a while. Yeah, so Honecker only comes into power in 1971, so you do still have a decade between the the building of the Berlin Wall and, and Honecker, and we can maybe talk about the genes and the coffee in a minute as well as a separate a separate thing. But you're right, basically. So there there isn't a major uprising. There isn't another 1953 or anything like. Not even mass demonstrations, and that's not out of fear. You do get a little bit of that in Berlin on both sides because people were so used to being able to just move freely within the city that a lot of people had, say, for instance, their job was in West German, in West Berlin, but they lived in East Berlin, and that was still perfectly possible because it was an open city up until August 19, 1961. So it's mostly in Berlin where you get a little bit of unrest, particularly in West Berlin, where a very fiery mayor of West Berlin, Willy Brandt, who will later become the German chancellor on the, in West Germany, is really genuinely angry about this and wants to whip up the masses and say this is an outrage we'll do something about it and he doesn't get much back from president kennedy or from chancellor Konrad adenauer in west germany or from the russians they're all sitting there quietly relieved almost that this last potential conflict place that was berlin because that was the place where soldiers from both sides were literally standing there next to each other effectively and if one of them had lost the plot Remember, this is one year before the Cuban Missile Crisis to give people some sort of idea of how uh, tense the situation was and how close it was to the Third World War or to a nuclear war even. So there's this strange, everybody is like a little bit outraged, but not too much situation where people are quietly accepting that. It put a lid on it, basically. Yeah, effectively, there's now an actual border that can be a line in the sand, if you will, where both sides say you're not crossing that. Whereas previously, that didn't exist. People were literally crossing back and forth, as I said, on a day-to-day basis. The huge tragedy was, of course, and I I don't deny that in the book by any stretch of the imagination. I used uh, different personal stories to show that as well. The huge tragedy is for those people particularly in Berlin, who've got relatives, close relatives in West Berlin, and they just didn't know that this was going to happen. It's literally overnight, literally overnight on the 13th, of that suddenly these barricades appear and people can't go back and forth anymore. So if you have decided that you live in East Berlin, maybe because you always lived in a particular district or you just feel at home there, and suddenly your 
a sister or a parent or whoever is or your job is on the other side and you just cannot go, go back over there, you know, suddenly that is a huge catastrophe. Or you suddenly feel claustrophobic and you wanted to get out and you've missed the moment and you want to leave. And those people, because initially there isn't a proper wall there, it just gets guarded by soldiers who have got orders to shoot at anybody crossing it. So people do die horrific deaths. And one of them, one of the early ones I, I use in the, what I talk about in the book is this Peter Fechter, who was only 18 and is bleeding to death for over an hour in the so-called death strip between the border defences because neither side dare cross that that strip and be shot at from the other side. They are tragic stories. But at the same time, and, and this is difficult morally, this is one of the things we were talking about earlier when I talk about this, it may sound cold-hearted, but it's true that the vast majority of East Germans, namely those who hadn't left at that point and lived in the GDR, despite the fact that they could have left from 1949 to 1961, who lived there and suddenly the doctor had to stay in their village or suddenly there was an engineer left who could actually set up a, a plumbing system somewhere or a new bridge which hadn't still hadn't been rebuilt because the Nazis blew them all up. And, and the system just stabilised as a result of that. And at the same time, the regime realises it's now locked people in, so it needs to make life worthwhile for them. So there's another huge push to to rebuild cities, to build housing as quickly as possible. People can really physically see the evidence of kind of progress around them. And this is also the time of you've got the space craze that also happens in the West with the moon landing and so on. But you also get that in the East, the first man in space is is a Soviet cosmonaut, as they called them. The first German in space is an East German. And suddenly there's a feeling they can actually do this race. There's real progress there and people take some pride in that. Yes, this is a good segue to talk about some of the positive elements of East German culture or as it's set up by the government. Uh, and if I could just list them here and then we can talk about it. And I'm also curious to hear about in what ways, if any, these cultural differences got incorporated into the wider German culture post-reunification. So you, you talk about a kind of a feminist revolution that by 1981, 91% of the women were in the workforce, the highest rate in the world with state-sponsored childcare making it possible. There was a facilitating of equal opportunity for the working class to join the military and get a university education. There was subsidized housing for housing rentals. There was a production of a small, affordable, often made fun of car, the Trabant. And the average income was considerably lower than in West Germany, but there was a more equal distribution of wealth and less relative poverty. So those are all all very impressive things. And and I think it's it's, interesting that you include that in your book, that it's even in a reviled system, it can sometimes do things right. Yeah, you can't. And this is, again, a thing that, that Germany still finds very difficult. Most of, by the way, most of my critical reviews actually came from sort of German scholars who've invested their, whole, their entire careers on talking about the East German dictatorship. And now I come along and say, actually, it is a dictatorship. Of course it is. But that doesn't mean that everything in it needs to be put in that context. So with the women, that is one example, it isn't a feminist revolution. And, and that's why many people, particularly feminists actually in the West, get very upset with the idea that, that it's described as such, because it doesn't come from the women themselves. This is the regime saying men <laughs> who are sitting at the top, saying women must now be equal. And the society is sitting there still very conservative. Let's not forget that they've not only always been quite conservative, Germany is quite a conservative country and on a social level. But then on top of that, you do have have 12 years of nuts where people were basically rewarded and told that that women ought to stay at home have as many children as possible and then earn medals for that and you're trying to basically tell this society now in the 50s 
that women ought to be in in factories or in universities or in politics and that's not an easy thing to do and it's part of a that there's not a conflict there between the dictatorship and doing something we now regard as progressive because it's it's that dictatorship that dictates to people that women are now equal. And whilst that in the end produces results that are quite remarkable, you still see this today, for instance, that East Germany actually, so what was East Germany, it has a reverse gender pay gap still today because women are still in their minds. It's an obvious thing for them to do to enter the job market and to want to do well for themselves. And they don't go in there with the mindset that it just is a job that they do alongside raising a family. But it's both equal status in many East German women's minds as their career is as important to them often, which is why they're more driven. They ask for pay rises. They want to climb the career ladder. It's not a thing that they do until they have children. And children are still being put into kindergartens and state cares earlier than they are in West Germany because culturally it lasted, even though it came out of the, the mindset of a dictatorship. And to me, as a historian, I'm quite happy to have both of these thoughts in my mind at the same time, and I don't try and equate them or compare them. But I leave that standing because for me, that's the historical reality. But people looking at it today become very uneasy when you say people only paid 4% in rent, for example, because the state subsidized rent so heavily and build these houses for workers they weren't there to, to make a profit basically and then the, quickly the argument comes as economically unsustainable and that's absolutely true both of these things are true at the same time and i don't see why that why that can't be the case why you can't say that it still means that people didn't fear in the way that they did often in the west that they might lose their house or not be able to pay their mortgage or might not be able to pay the rent the next month those fears didn't exist for people kind of fundamental angst that many people in Western countries have of unemployment, particularly after the oil crisis in the 70s and 80s, that doesn't exist in East Germany. And that's something that some people are nostalgic about because they've never forgotten how you have an absolutely secure baseline level of wealth, basically, even if it's not much, you're never going to starve, you're never going to not have a roof over your head, and you're never going to not have a job, basically. And with those fears out of, out of the way, if you're not politically minded or if you're not somebody who gets upset by the idea that there isn't a public space for you to voice your opinion, you can live a, a life in East Germany. And that's what I was trying to highlight. And contrary to, I think, a, a popular view in, in the United States that if you don't have competition, then you don't have incentive. And if you don't have incentive, you don't have hard work. But it's, it sounds to me that there was a lot of hard work in East Germany, despite the lack of those incentives, in spite of the lack of competition. Yeah, it's a very different work culture. It's hard to, even for me, it's hard to wrap my head around because I didn't grow up in that system either. But work meant a lot to people. It was the central part, I would say, really, of people's lives. They defined themselves like through their work and took, took a lot of pride in it as well. And those workplaces were also like social places at the same time. They were like clubs, for example, that, that people went to. Quite often, they, holidays would be organized through your workplace where you basically applied for a holiday place, which was also heavily subsidized. And then through your workplace, you'd be allocated that. It's really quite a central thing in people's lives and not something that they just did to make a living. And they would get medals, for example, for they, they could be like a hero of labor, for example, would be like a medal that you'd get given in a similar way to what soldiers got. So it's hard to explain. There, there, is, there are productivity issues. Of course, there are because people are complacent, aren't they? If you know that you're not going to lose your job, you're not going to be particularly worried about putting in an easy shift one day or the next. But the overwhelming culture was work is part of who you are and it's part of what you contribute to society. 
So we have only a few minutes left, and I think uh, we, we need to at least uh, briefly cover the uh, fall of the GDR and the reunification. How did that happen? Yeah, so you obviously have the wider situation of the Soviet Union collapsing, um, mainly because it just couldn't uh, keep up with the arms race any longer. It, it was really struggling in Afghanistan, which is many people have described as the Vietnam of, of the Soviet Union. Basically, the war there um, was unwinnable and, and plowed lots of or pulled lots of resources out of it. So that's beginning to crumble. And then you get Gorbat, Mikhail Gorbachev coming in as the leader of the USSR in 1985 and basically saying, I need to reform this entire system. And in part, as part of those reforms, he tells the Eastern European states, do what you want, basically. We haven't got the means anymore to prop you all up. And that puts the fear of God into the communist leaders who had been puppet leaders largely of the Soviet Union previously, um, some of whom start reforms. So, for instance, in Hungary, you get a reform movement. They open their borders with uh, Austria, with their old partner, um, whom they were part of an empire with before the, before the First World War. And all of those changes happen around the GDR. And there's a last outpost, really, trying to hold out and saying, just because the Soviet Union is reforming, we don't have to. And that's what's making a lot of people very angry, basically. They can see all of these changes everywhere. And in, in Germany itself, nothing happens. And you begin to see mass uprisings. And a, and a key thing that happened, it sounds to me, is that when the support, the economic support disappeared from the Soviet Union, then the leaders of East Germany, Honecker in particular, realized that he was going to have a rapprochement with West Germany and create stronger economic ties and allow more freedom of movement. And so that sort of laid the seeds, I think, for the whole thing collapsing. Yeah, that's already going on from the sort of early 1980s onwards, because the oil crises of the 70s effectively make the Soviets realize that they can sell their energy, mainly their oil and gas, more cheaply on their, sorry, more profitably on the world market, and they stop supplying East Germany with it. So East Germany is looking, as you say, towards West Germany more, and there's getting some loans and things from there, which I also describe in the book. And that already, as you say, means more cooperation and more, uh, a look westwards. But always, I should say, and you still see this in the communication from both sides, it's always with a view to stabilizing the situation, to making sure that the two Germanys can exist side by side and that war wouldn't emanate from German soil again. The, the leaders, as I say, this is still a generation that has experienced Nazism on both sides, actually. Helmut Kohl, the West German Chancellor, was a child and was still involved in the Second World War right up the very end. So that's the main idea. is isn't so much reunifying Germany at this point. Nobody thought up until it actually happened that it would happen. So I want to just quote from toward the end of your book, and maybe we can uh, talk just for a minute about that. You write, in, and yet the old fault lines are, are not disintegrating, meaning from before the uh, when the countries were separate. Take a map showing patterns of almost anything in Germany, and more often than not, the old east-west fault lines will appear from voting, vaccines acceptance and obesity, to language use, attitudes toward Russia and wine consumption. An after image that will not fade, the GDR's imprint on Germany refuses to dissipate. So I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. So in, in what ways are these two Germanys still vestiges of it or the ghosts of it are still existing? And in a sense, East Germany became a kind of its own subculture over those decades of, of separate existence. Yeah, so when we were talking about women earlier, that's, for instance, something that hasn't gone away. So when the Berlin Wall fell and Germany reunified in 1990. I was five years old. My sister had literally just been born. She's born in 1990. So my mother was there basically with a five-year-old child and a baby and went back to work because <laughs> that's what you did. 
And, and meanwhile, you had basically Westra and she was a teacher. So when she was then sent on some training courses and things, as most East German teachers were, the idea was that they had to learn from their Western counterparts how to do things properly. They were all looking at her as if she was a really bad mother. How can you sit here in, in this like teaching seminar and have two small children at home? Because they just didn't understand why you would do such a thing. And those attitudes have, for instance, stayed, even though over time, I'm sure over time they will get less so and in some areas you can see that but that's still very much the case or east german habits for example east germans tend to take their shoes off before they go into someone's house and that tends to be a very east german thing to do west germans can just wipe them on the doormat and then go in those sorts of habits are still there and they make it sometimes very obvious where you're from politically i think it's interesting that you get much more radical voting in the east particularly far-right parties at the moment are leading in all of the East German states, apart from Berlin, which is a bit of a special case. But apart from that, that is certainly the case. And that's also something where people are quick to say, these people grew up in a dictatorship, so obviously they don't get democracy. When I think the opposite is the case, they saw in the end that it's initiatives at grassroots level, is the subcultures, the demonstrations, the art clubs, all of these, the churches, all of these organizations that were outside of the state where democracy happened and in the end was able to bring the state down. That, that's not the strongest form of, of democracy, then I don't know what is in the end to have a people's uprising. And they are now not happy with the way that this democracy that they've been promised and that they've been dreaming of for so long isn't what they think it is, basically. Those, those differences are there. And they're not afraid of a far right party be, becoming fa- fascist. You think that would be a danger? They are, but they don't see that. They see that as an anti-establishment vote, basically. It's largely a protest vote from people. That's certainly my opinion. The way that, you know, some things that people are unhappy about, so say, for instance, mass immigration is something that East Germans quite openly talk about and then get basically told that they can't get called racist and things like that when they want to have a discussion about that and they're told that they can't. So they vote for a party that tells them we're listening to you. Those up there, those in Berlin don't. And you very quickly get this anti-establishment rhetoric going, which works particularly well. People also forget that East Germany is still very rural. So you also get this these kind of anti-city dynamics playing into it as well. Yeah, that happens elsewhere too. Thank you so much, uh, Katja Hoyer, a, a German-British historian, journalist and author of The Widely Acclaimed Blood and Iron. Her recent book is Beyond the Wall about the history of East Germany from 1949 to 1990. So thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed the conversation. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.